If you would turn in your Bible to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness <clears throat> is shown in peace by those who make peace. Heavenly Father, God, as we open your word this morning, may we never forget the foundation of all we know, the foundation of all we believe, the foundation of all we do is the hope we have in that glorious day. Lord, just as we sing even a modern version, Lord, all the way back when John and Charles Wesley wrote the words to that song and thousands of years prior to that. Lord, the glorious day that your son died for me. The glorious day your son rose again. The glorious day that the scripture tells us your son sat down at the right hand of your throne on high. And Lord, the glorious day where he will return for his church. Even as we open your word this morning, may we live each moment of our lives with the cry that has been the cry of the New Testament church since its beginning. Maranatha. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So man's wisdom is flawed and ever-changing. There's a few old newspaper ads. One from 1916 said, It is healthy to give Blatt's beer to infants. It's actually entitled, How Mother and Baby Picked Up. It says, quote, A case of Blatt's beer in your home means so much to the young mother, and obviously baby participates in its benefits. The malt in the beer supplies nourishing qualities that are essential at this time, and the hops act as an appetizing, uh, appetizing stimulating tonic. End quote. Of course, these days, uh, doctors would scoff at this 20th century, quote-unquote, wisdom. 
Or number two, this is a fun one, from the late 60s. It's an advertisement for a Kenmore blender called The Chef. The ad says, quote, The chef does everything but cook for you. That's what your wife is for, end quote. I'm just saying, I'm just not saying that. Or the next one from 1885. It advertises cocaine teething drops for babies. And you wonder how the owners of this company stayed out of jail. Well, cocaine wasn't made illegal until 1907. Or the last one, and I get the kick out of this one. Quote, the hard disk you've been waiting for. 10 megabytes for only (laughs) $3,348. See, human wisdom is flawed and it is ever-changing. There's always something new. And as we'll see this morning, James describes these two types of wisdom. The spiritual wisdom that comes from God and earthly wisdom that does not. And we will see that those with a genuine faith walk according to the right kind of wisdom. And we come to see that genuine faith walks in godly wisdom. Genuine faith walks in godly wisdom. A couple of weeks ago, I want to recap since we we had a week off. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about controlling the tongue. And really, um, it ended, or, or at least in part, ended with this desperate nature of the condition of our speech where it says that um, no man, verse 8 of chapter 3, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. End quote. This would be an, just a terrible place to ultimately land. To be made aware of a horrible problem and then have no recourse to address it. We're left at a place where we can say, and and this is really where it it, it leaves us at the end of verses 11 and 12, when he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And it's as if it leaves us in a spot where we're supposed to say, how could I ever fix this? Or how can I overcome this problem and achieve maturity? Which is what James says at the very beginning of James 1. However, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James, ever the pastor, he gives us an answer to our problem. And in fact, he gives us a a problem or an answer to fix our problem that is beyond our ability to fix it personally. In fact, in the first chapter of James, when, if you remember, when you're in a difficult place and you don't know how to handle trial and difficulty, do you remember what he says to do? So when you're at the end of your rope and you don't know how to live when you're dealing with all of the trials and temptations that you're supposed to consider all joy, do you remember what he says? He says um, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach. 
the answer to our need is not found in our own wisdom. Or in anything we can do on our own. It is found solely in the wisdom of God. So to control our speech and really to control all other aspects of our life, we cannot rely on our own wisdom. It's interesting to see how often we think we've just got everything figured out. We've, I've got this, I've got living this way figured out. I've got living for Christ figured out. And we know the best way to accomplish certain things. And I, I will submit to you that the Bible refers to this as thinking you are wise. Thinking you are wise. But this morning, James gives us another test to see if that's accurate. Because it's not enough to simply think you are wise. But we have to realize from this passage that first, godly wisdom begets godly living. Godly wisdom begets godly living. Verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So it's really a rhetorical question. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? The idea is, is if you're in a group of people, James is essentially asking his congregation, those that are reading this, hey, if, you're, if you believe you're wise and understanding, would you just come forward, please? Just step over the line. As, as, as you, you could see people running to grab their resumes or to grab their uh, how many years they've been in church or how many years they've been in Bible study or how many books they've gone through or how many times they've read the Bible through from cover to cover and all these different things. How many times they've done this and which school they went to and everything and who their pastor was growing up as they're running to grab all of these things that prove that they are wise and understanding. James says, none of that matters. Let me tell you what the actual test is. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. This is one of those points where James, I'd love to say, now, here's what that really means. Okay, here's what that really means. James says... If you are wise in understanding, the only way to prove that and to show that is that you live according to the way you say you believe. To put it another way, James doesn't care what's on your resume. He says, put your axe where your mouth is. By his good conduct... Or good works, as he's spoken of often. In fact, he says, let him show here in the ESV. It can literally be translated, he must show. This is the only way to do it. Saying you're wise, saying you understand things, or acting as though you do, is not enough. You must show it. But then, look what he says. Because this is where it really gets interesting. You say, well, I, I do good works. I do this, and I do this, and I do this. See, it shows that I do these things. It's as if James, or even more specifically, it's as if the Holy Spirit understands our hearts. It's like God knows exactly how we think. 
Right? Because immediately when he says, if any of you wants to prove that you're wise and understanding, come forward. You start to come forward. He goes, hold on, let me give you the real test. The real test is good works. You say, hey, I do that. I do good works. I come to church. I, I work at this. I volunteer here. I do this and I do this. And then he throws a wrinkle in that every one of us has to stop and ask ourselves a question. Are there any wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Say, well, I feel like I'm wise and understanding. Well, are you? Do, you? do you do good works? Yeah, I feel like I do good works. Then James goes, oh, by the way, when you do them, do you do them with humility? Because he doesn't say, if you want to be wise and understanding, you can show that by good works. He says, if you want to show that you're wise and understanding, show that by doing good works in humility. In humility. That means doing good works while not drawing attention to yourself. Doing good works while not letting others know exactly what you are doing. See, this comes... From an understanding, see, humility comes from an understanding of who we are in relation to something. See, pride comes from comparing who we are in relation to other people. That's where pride comes from. Comparing ourselves to other people. Why am I awesome? Because I'm more awesome than you. Why, is, why am I smart? Because my education is better than yours. Why do I know more? Because I read more than you. Why am I better at this? Because I do this more than you. Why am I so popular? Because I have more Instagram followers than you. Why am I so, so on and so on? Because I'm comparing myself to other people. In fact, our culture is built on this currency. It is built on the currency of saying, I am better because I'm better than you. And so back and forth it goes because there is no way to get out of this cycle. Why? Because you're either better than someone or worse than someone, period. That's just the way it is. That's why we have all kinds of arguments and, and quarrels, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's why we have this because everyone's comparing themselves to everyone else. And yet he says, if you want to show that you are wise and understanding, which are really just um, uh, con, uh, synonyms, they're, they're basically the same thing, but they're both practical. And which means it's not just that you know something, but that you actually do something in light of what you know. He says you live in humility. See, here's the thing. Pride comes when I compare myself to you and when you compare yourself to me. That's when pride happens. Humility comes when I compare myself to God. See, here's the thing. The moment I compare myself to God, I have to cry out like the psalmist who looked up at the night sky and he looked at the sun and or the moon and the stars and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would have mercy on him. Or Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord high and lofty, seated on a throne, what does he do? He doesn't stand there and begin to proclaim his own righteousness. He falls on his face and he says, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord. 
when John in John chapter one, in the, or I mean, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter one, when he is in the spirit on the Lord's day and he hears a voice from behind him telling him to do something and he turns and he sees Jesus Christ, one as like the son of man, it says what? It says he fell on his face like a dead man. Why? Because when I compare myself to you and you compare yourself to me, we can get into this battle of who's better and who's worse and who's more awesome and who's not. And pride begins to take over in our hearts. But the moment we step back and we all compare ourselves to God, we realize that we are simply men and women of unclean lips. We dwell in a people of unclean lips. Why? Because once we see the Lord, we see ourselves for who we really are. And the only way to declare and to show that you live in wisdom and understanding is to to perform good works, but to do so in humility. Why? Because I understand who I am in light of God. See, John, uh, uh, James talked about what happens when a poor man comes into the congregation. Um, here's the deal. When you compare yourself to the poor man or you compare yourself to the rich man, you act differently. But when you compare yourself to God and you compare him to God, guess what? You're exactly the same. To put it in an old preacher term, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no one difference. So he says, if you want to show that you have wisdom and understanding, then show it in meekness and humility. Christian leaders, no matter how much they know, if they're not humble, they may be smart, they may be knowledgeable, but they are not wise. He's calling us out and saying, if any of you believe you've got this figured out, do you live a righteous and humble life? That's what he's asking. It's not enough to simply do good works. We're called to do them in humility. We are called to live our lives according to the wisdom and understanding of God, to do so in good works and make certain that those works are done in God-focused and others-oriented humility. God-focused and others-oriented. So that's actually the root of everything we believe. It's the root of everything we know. In fact, Jesus himself said that is the summary of all the law and the prophets. God-focused, others-oriented. Why do I say Jesus said that? Because when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's God-focused. And then others-oriented. He said, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this is all the law and the prophets. It must be marked in humility. God-focused, others-oriented. So godly wisdom begets godly living, but... Worldly wisdom is not neutral. It's not neutral. I, I want you to know this. If, if you're living according to worldly wisdom, which we'll see what that looks like, it's not neutral. Well, sometimes it's not neutral. See, if you, you can't live according to worldly wisdom and expect godly outcomes. You cannot expect worldly wisdom to bring anything good. In fact, worldly wisdom doesn't bring peace. Worldly wisdom creates conflict. Worldly wisdom creates conflict. Look at verse 14. But 
If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So we just got this distinction. So now he's, he's talked about um, this, this who is wise. And he says, well, now that I've asked you who is wise, let, let's de- define what we mean by wisdom. Because there's really two types of wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. And he's going to talk about worldly wisdom first. And this is what it looks like. If you have bitter jealousy, the word could be translated envy. It means self-oriented desire to possess something that is not yours. Jealousy and selfish ambition. This is a divisive desire. Selfish ambition. I desire for things to get better so that people will think I'm awesome. This is actually the exact opposite of humility. It's the exact opposite of humility. James says, but if these things exist, jealousy and selfish ambition. Now look at where they exist. This is important. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, in your hearts, what does that let me know? That means that sometimes we're good church people, right? We can do good good works and put on our church people face. So I'm just here to serve the Lord, brother. I'm just helping out, sister. That's what I'm doing. But where's the jealousy and the selfish ambition happening? In here. James is saying, you can put the face on, but you can't hide what's in your heart. He says, it is in your heart. If you have these things, you say, well, how do we know that they have these things? Well, that's when you have a brother or a sister in Christ, and he is speaking to Christians, so we apply this to the church. That's when you have a brother or sister in Christ who, man, they say, man, I know he acts this way, and I know she says that, but they're such good servants. But they just, they're so involved. Look at what he said follows. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Let me put this in modern day terms. He says, if you're doing all these things, but you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, stop lying. That's what he says. Stop lying. That's what you're doing. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Why? Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So this is, he says, this is not God's wisdom. This is not the way that believers are supposed to act. This is not the way that those who are supposed to be wise and understanding should live. Why? This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So now he's going to tell us, where it's from, in the sense of its, its origin. He said, first, it is earthly, or it is earthbound. It is the opposite of above. It is the opposite of heavenly. It is earthly. It is human. It is fleshly. It is broken. It is affected by sin. All those things that you could attach to earthly is what it means. James says, first, it's earthly. Second, it is unspiritual i.e. devoid of the Spirit of God. 
So he says, if you live according to this wisdom, then first, you think the way the world thinks. Second, the Holy Spirit doesn't factor into the situation at all. It is both earthly and unspiritual. And that's condemning enough. I mean, to be honest, James is saying, look, it doesn't come from above. It comes from the earth. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. You're not being guided by the Holy Spirit. You're being guided by something else, which is why he adds the third thing. It is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. Let that settle in for a minute. In the church of God, when jealousy and selfish ambition exist, what does that look like? Selfish ambition looks like arguing because things are not going the way you like them personally. Selfish ambition looks like saying, well, that's not what I like. That's not what I want. That's not the way I like to hear it. That's not the way I think it should sound. Can I tell you, worship and ministry has absolutely nothing to do, I'm going to set you free right here, nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the glory of God. We worship for the glory of God, not according to the way that we think it should be done. I was talking to Pastor Dana about this this week. Worship service. Here's a reason that people call them. They'll say, we come to our worship celebration. Come to our worship experience. Come to our worship encounter. Okay, when you say come to our worship experience, you know what that means? It makes it sound like worship is something that is about you. It's something you're supposed to experience. The reason we call it a worship service is because when we come into this room, we are not coming to get something primarily. We are coming to give something. It's about service and it's about honoring Him. He says, when worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom, unspiritual, not God-guided wisdom enters the church. That's when people start walking around saying, this is the way I think it should be. And he says, hey, that's earthly, that's unspiritual, hear me, and it's demonic. It's demonic. You say, well, is that hyperbole? Yes, it is. He is hyperbolically saying exactly what he means. It's demonic. It is the influence of Satan. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. No, hear me. When Satan wants to drag down the work of God and Satan wants to hamper the work of God, where does he come to? To the source. He comes to the church. And if he can get people in the church to start dealing with jealousy and ambition and worldly wisdom, and this is mine, and this is yours, this is my ministry, this is your ministry, this is the way I like it to sound, no, this is what I like it to sound like, and so on and so on and so on and so on, what are we doing? We're so busy looking at each other and dealing with pride and dealing with all these other things that we've, we have totally disregarded and we have shut down completely and we start saying things like, well, this is my ministry area and that's your ministry area. It's all His ministry. So he says, well, why? Because in the midst of that, you know who's involved in that? That's Satan. That's Satan. The enemy of the church. So, well, the church got an enemy. The world is it. No, no. Satan is the enemy of the church. He uses the world as a tool. 
We have an enemy. And he says, he's talking to God's people. You're living with, according to wisdom. You're living according to understanding. Then you will not have jealousy and selfish ambition. But you will show that wisdom. And you will show that understanding through the meekness of wisdom. Through humility. He says, because, why? Because where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Look at verse 16. There will be disorder and every vile practice. There will be disorder and every vile practice. It's interesting, the word here, disorder. Uh, the word here, disorder, in chapter 1, verse 8, it is actually defined or, or translated as double-minded. This is a man who is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. In chapter 3... Verse 8, just, just the last section when he was talking about those who could not tame the tongue. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Or it is a double-minded evil. It's, it's always going around. The concept that he's describing here when he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. There will be double-mindedness. There will be double-speaking. It will be unstable. It will be restless. What is James saying? When the people of God live according to the wisdom of the world, you can look at a church and see it looks like a stormy sea. There is disorder and arguing and unstable, double-mindedness, going after one another and not looking like God and comparing one another to each other and so on and so on and so on. And it looks like everybody's over here and you got this faction doing this and this faction doing that and you got this group over here doing this and this group over here doing that. And when you step into it, it just looks like spaghetti all over the place and it's just, it's just wild. And James says that's because of jealousy and selfish ambition. That's because you're living according to the wisdom of the world. Now here's the scary one. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You know what that means? That means when a church is living according to the wisdom of the world, you should not be surprised when churches big quotation marks, when churches start allowing things that the Word of God stands completely against. You cannot be, dis you cannot be surprised when churches, mainline evangelical churches, begin to accept things that the, the Word of God explicitly forbids, the Word of God explicitly speaks to, and calls sin. You cannot be surprised when they live according to worldly wisdom that they not only accept those vile practices, but they embrace them. He says, when you live according to the world's wisdom, the earthly wisdom, the unspiritual wisdom, the demonic wisdom, you cannot be surprised when it looks like chaos and you will accept everything. We cannot live according to worldly wisdom and then say we are walking in righteousness. He says, do not boast and be false to the truth. In fact, this kind of living is completely opposite to godly wisdom. It's the exact opposite of godly wisdom to which we are called. 
This type of wisdom is seen in a prideful person or group of people who need to get their way constantly and in order to do so they're willing to tear others down they desire their own comfort over God's kingdom they desire their own advancement over others this comes from Satan and it causes exactly what he would love storms of evil within the church so is it any wonder that many churches and church people are frustrated and can't move forward Why can't we grow? Why can't we make an impact? Why can't we do all these things? Well, maybe it's because they should stop and ask themselves, are we living according to the wisdom of God? Or are we living according to the wisdom of this world? Should we stop and ask ourselves when we struggle personally and when we struggle corporately as a church? Is it because we're walking according to worldly wisdom? Is it because we're more concerned about what the world thinks and we're more concerned about what we get out of it than God's glory? There's a man in uh, church history I, I love. Um, and I love him, of course, because of what he stood for, but also... He may have one of two of the greatest names in all of history. His name was Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Awesome. Extremely wealthy, aristocratic guy who founded the the movement of Moravian missionaries. And when Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf died... You go to his tombstone, and his tombstone said, Live for God, die, and be forgotten. Let that sink in for a minute. Live for God, die, and be forgotten. Why? Because God's glory is all that matters. Me being remembered does not matter. It doesn't matter at all. I plan on pastoring this church for the next 35 years. And in the midst of that, I'm telling you, at the end of that time, when I go to be with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the the tenure of the next pastor, you better never utter the words, well, Pastor Jeremy, it doesn't matter what Pastor Jeremy did. Unless the only answer is Pastor Jeremy pointed us to the glory of God. And then move on. Why? Because I don't care what you're doing. I'm in heaven. And the glory of God's all that matters. And at that moment, I'm basking in it. Why, why do I say all that? Because when you live according to the worldly wisdom, you live for your own glory. You want to be remembered. You want to have people think well of you. In the end, all that matters is one phrase. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. So worldly wisdom creates conflict, but then I'm glad he doesn't leave us here because he lets us know what it should look like. Because godly wisdom produces peace. Godly wisdom produces peace. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above 
is first pure, then peaceable, and so on. I, I'll, I'll submit to you that um, the word here, when he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, and it, it, this doesn't mean first in order. It means first in primacy, like it's the highest thing. So we could read it this way. But the wisdom from above is above all pure. Above all pure. It means innocent or blameless. It's what true wisdom produces. And then he gives us seven attributes. Seven things that mark both a a, a follower of Christ who is truly wise and understanding and a church that is following the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of men. Look at what he says here. He says, first, they are peaceable. It means peace-loving. You ever met anybody in the church that looks like they woke up looking for a fight? Just want to argue about everything. He says, that's not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is first peaceable. And it it, it loves peace. It means peace-loving. Second, godly wisdom is Gentle. Gentle. It means considerate. It means you don't think about yourself first, you think of other people first. Sounds strangely like what Paul said. Then he says this one, which is really hard. He says, open to reason. Open to reason. Now, just, just by way of logic, what is the opposite of being reasonable? It is being unreasonable. He says, this is actually a mark of godly wisdom. That first, you are peace-loving. Second, you are considerate. And third, you are reasonable. You're open to reason. Literally, it means easily persuaded or willing to show deference. What that means is, I have an idea about the way I think things should be. Of course we all do. Everyone has opinions. But it's saying, I have an idea about the way things ought to be, and you have a way about uh, the, the way things ought to be, and neither one of them is unbiblical. So I'm willing to give deference to you. But remember, that means, well, I'll never get my way. Well, first of all, that shouldn't be your focus. But second of all, if you're showing deference to them, they're showing deference to you. Which in the end, you know where that leads in that conversation? No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. Then we say, how about we stop for a minute and pray about this and see what God wants? See, that's godly wisdom. So it's willing to show deference, open to reason. In fact, these three things are the exact opposite of worldly wisdom. They're envious, selfish, and ambitious. Here he says, no, you're supposed to be peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. But he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 17, full of mercy and good fruits. It's it's acts of mercy are the fruits. So it's full of mercy and good fruits. It should not be the case that the people of God are vindictive in any way. We should never look at someone and say, you know what, that's what he deserved. 
She got what was coming to her. I'm, I'm telling you this. The foundation of my existence is that I am thankful every day I have not gotten what I deserve. The foundation of my worship is that I did not get what I earned. I was given what I did not earn. He says you're supposed to be full of mercy. Then he says, impartial. Impartial. The word is not divided in loyalty. This means it's the same theme that he's been talking about. You're not double-minded. You're impartial. Your loyalty is not divided between whom? Between yourself and between God. That's what the word means. You're not impart or you are impartial. You're not divided between what I want and what God wants. I just don't, I mean, I think God wants this, but I really want this. No, no. If you're if you're following godly wisdom, it's well, I want this, but God wants this, so I throw this in the trash can and I do what God wants. As a church, we don't say, but this is what we it doesn't matter what we feel, it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we've done before. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter. All that matters is what brings Him glory. That's godly wisdom. Impartial. And then he says, sincere. It means genuine. This person is stable, trustworthy, authentic with others. What's one of the number one claims that the world makes against the church? It's, well, I don't want to go to church. They're a bunch of hypocrites, right? Here's the thing. We are. Put that out there. And we're not. See, I can, I'm hypocritical, and I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm hypocritical. I just also know that's one of my biggest problems. And I have to bring it to the feet of Jesus and plead for forgiveness and to be made right to be more like him. Because living according to godly wisdom is genuine. It's not hypocritical. It's genuine. That's where you don't go to people in the world and say, now over at the church, we've got it figured out. So you should come over here and we'll show you how to get it figured out. It's, hey, you should come over to the church because we're kind of just trying to make it through this thing. And um, if you'd like to come alongside us and try to make it through this thing again, we'd be happy to welcome you into our fellowship with Jesus. That's the difference between the two. We don't have it all figured out. We have nothing figured out. But we serve the one who knows everything. We follow the one who knows everything. He says, sincere, Why? Because what happens? What happens? It says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's saying righteousness and peace can flourish when this type of wisdom prevails. When we determine that every single solitary thing we do... In our lives, yes, but in this church, everything we do begins with the phrase, for the glory of God, we. Not for anything else, because that is godly wisdom. If we are truly wise and understanding, as he says in verse 13, we'll be marked by these characteristics. 
through this kind of godly living will bring peace and not war among the people of God and within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, what does this do? Where do these things, where does this wisdom from the world, where, where does the jealousy and the selfish ambition, where does it live? He says, if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. That's where it lives. It lives in your heart. It lives in my heart. So what does this mean? It means we need to take a deep look inside and ask ourselves, am I marked by godly wisdom? Or am I marked by always wanting my own way? Am I marked by saying, I think things should be this way because this is the way I like them? Am I marked by that? Or am I marked by godly wisdom that ultimately says, I want what's best for others and I want what's best for the glory of God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And if the answer, which it always is, I could tell you this, the most, one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray, pray as a believer is, Lord, show me my sin. Because He will. He will bring it right up to the surface. You know what's really scary? When we pray, Lord, show me my sin, He brings it up to the surface for us. I can promise you this. You may be seeing it for the first time, but others are not. They have seen it in jealousy and selfish ambition and quarrelsome and, and boasting. So the cry this morning for those of us who follow Christ is, Lord, show me my sin. Show me where I've been following according to earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, demonic Wisdom. Show me those places. And then God, route them out of my life forever. So that you might receive the glory. And maybe you're looking at yourself this morning and you see more evidence of worldly wisdom in your life than you do godly wisdom. Maybe even exclusively. And in this moment you're recognizing the fact that it may just be not because you partake of some worldly wisdom every now and then, but you're actually squarely on the side of the world. You're living on the side of the world. And, uh, Paul would refer to that as being at enmity with God. You're standing against God. And in this moment, what is the answer? Fix yourself. No, you can't do that. Make yourself better? No, you can't do that either. Clean yourself off and make yourself presentable. There's not enough soap in the world. Start saying the right things where you weren't before. No, you can't fix that. Why? Because the problem's not in your mouth, it's in your heart. You know what the answer to your problem is? It's the same answer I had to realize 28 years ago. The answer to your problem is that you don't deserve to be made clean. You don't deserve to be made right. But he offers you grace far greater than any sin in your life. Any bitterness, any jealousy, any anger, any selfish ambition, any worldly, unspiritual wisdom. 
Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. It is beyond anything you have done. It is beyond anything you could do. Jesus is there simply saying, submit to me today and I will cleanse you from all of that. Where you could not make yourself clean, I will make you clean. Where you could not make yourself right, I will make you right. Where you could not make yourself whole, I will put you back together. Where you could not have an eternity in my presence, I will bring you near to me. He will do that for you this morning if you will submit your life to Him. Turn yourself over to Him and say, I want to follow you for the rest of my existence. That's the grace He offers if you notice today that you are not on the side of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for joining us here this morning as we've worshipped together. And I'm so grateful that you've been here to sing praises again and to study God's Word. If you'd like to know more information about Eastwood Baptist Church, you can go online to our website at eastwoodbc.org. If you're here in the Bowling Green area, we'd love to have you join us in person at any time that you can at our East Campus or at our South Campus in the Alberton area. Again, we're so grateful you joined with us, and we pray that God blesses you in the week to come.